Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh and welcome to the 12th session of Islamic Book Reviews with myself, Usama Al-Azami and my colleague at Edinburgh University, uh, Dr. Omar Anshasi. This is a wonderful opportunity for me to ask Omar about what he's been reading lately and this week he's going to be discussing uh, a wonderful book by Simonetta Calderini, uh, Women as Imams, Classical uh, Islamic Sources and Modern Debates on Leading Prayer. And uh, the standard format is Omar will talk uh, for you know ten minutes or so, and then uh, I will engage him in a conversation about the book for maybe about half an hour, followed by Q and A. And the Q and A is basically an opportunity for anyone who's watching to write in a chat, um, whether they're on Facebook, whether they're on YouTube, and we'll be able to get that. We'll be able to share that on the screen, and we welcome your sort of engagement in that regard. Um, so, without further ado, I'd like to welcome Omar to give a presentation on the book. Thank you, Osama. Uh, this is uh, a much-awaited and very important book. Uh, Simonetta mentions, I, or perhaps I'll refer to it as Dr. Calderini, mentions that its genesis began uh, as the result of a conversation with an Indian imam in 2009. She's published many articles on the subject since then. She's been quite prolific. And uh, this book has finally come out, I think, early in 2021, if I'm not mistaken, with I.B. Taurus. And the book breaks down or is comprised of an introduction and four body chapters. The introduction, of course, sets setting the scene and introducing us to important general considerations and points of methodology and so on. And uh, those four chapters are divided into two parts. The first three chapters explore women's imamate, their leadership of prayer, both of other women and of men in legal, historical, and hadith sources, focusing on the 7th to the 12th centuries of the common era, but drawing on sources until the 14th. The fourth and final chapter in the second part of the book focuses on modern debates about women's ritual leadership uh, in prayer. Uh, the 19th and 20th and, and 21st centuries in particular, looking at a range of contexts, uh, both majority uh, Muslim uh, contexts and also very significantly minority ones as well. It's very thoroughly researched. Uh, as far as I can tell, it's yeah, almost to the point of exhaustiveness. If, if you look at the, the sources uh, she draws on, as will become clear in our comments. Uh, the first chapter explores imamate and women in ritual, ritual purity, prayer leadership, and these kinds of things in general. Uh, the second chapter looks at women's leadership of other women in prayer. The third chapter looks at women's leadership of men in prayer specifically. And then, as I said, the fourth chapter looks at these modern uh, debates. So she makes a number of broad observations in the introduction and, and also in the first chapter. Uh, she situates herself not as an activist, so this is not a book advocate, advocating women's leadership of prayer, although she does come across as sympathetic to the cause. So uh, right at the end of the book, she compares uh, female imams, if you like, to the early uh, female martyrs of Islam. And uh, towards the end of the book, she even, uh, you could say, criticizes those who disregard the various uh, explicit hadith on women's imamate uh, as being themselves guilty of bid'ah, which is interesting. Um, but uh, a couple of major observations um, in the first chapter, especially uh, this very important connection between the imamate or al-imam al-kubra wa sughra. So the imamate is political leadership versus uh, leadership of ritual plan. This is a, a distinction and a connection, you could say, jurists frequently drawn in the discussion of these issues. Um, ritual purity in some sense is gendered, although uh, people are not, uh, or the ritual impurity is not uh, substantive, so you do not have impure persons, or impure human beings, at least in Islamic law, according to most jurists. Um, High, uh, by virtue of height and nifas, menstruation and postpartum bleeding and so on, uh, there are certain periods when, when women are ritually uh, impure. But this is not a contagious impurity, again, according to most tourists, because you do have discussion of this in the early period. 
Uh, one observational motif, if you like, throughout the book is this notion of the appropriation uh, or mobilization of the past in argument. Uh, whatever position uh, believers take on this issue, they are always involved in discussing and debating and constructing a particular account of the past. For instance, drawing on the famous hadith of Umwaraqa, uh, in some variants of which she led her household in prayer, or her dar could be interpreted as a household. Navin Reda interprets this term as a kind of locality, so even broader than this. And uh, Dr. Calderini says dar probably indicates you know, a tribal or clan grouping, so maybe even wider than simply a household, depending on how you interpret this word. Um, but Muslims are engaged in this debate about what the past means and how it, is, uh, how it can be used and deployed in argument. Uh, so that's one theme that flows throughout the book. Another key observation, which echoes, I think, uh, something I've researched, a lot of, um, well, a point that is reasonably well established, and I think there's still a lot more to say about it. I mean, Eli, Eli Al has written about uh, our zones of privacy in Islamic law from the 8th century onwards, but especially from about the 11th or 12th, uh, when you compare and contrast women's agency as depicted in uh, early hadith texts, for instance, with the situations a few centuries on, in the interests of minimizing fitna, jurists on a whole range of issues, and we see many, many evidences, uh, instances of this, come to be more conservative, quote unquote. So, uh, for example, when it comes to the Hanafi school, uh, early jurists such as a Tahawi, uh, when it comes to female imamate of other women in prayer, do not approve of it completely, but it, it is a position that we can characterize as karaha uh, tenzi here. It's disliked, but it's, it's permissible, it's valid. Uh, nonetheless, later jurists, uh, especially in the Hanafi Madhab, she mentions Kassani and Sarahsi, say that women's uh, imamate of other women, of course, is, uh, is mensur. It's abrogated, it's not exactly clear when. Is this after the death of the Prophet, alayhi salatu wasalam? Uh, she does not invoke this, these words, but it's an example of this facade zaman argument. And uh, Dr. Calderini points out it is always deployed to restrict women's ritual agency. Now, there are the areas of the law where you find something slightly different, but as a general rule, this is certainly true. Uh, and the, the report of Aisha about women's going to the mosques and if the Prophet knew what was happening, he would have prohibited this and so on. It's well known, discussed in in Marion Katz's book. Um, so I, there, there are many things going on in this book. Um, in discussing uh, women's leadership of other women in prayer, I've already pointed uh, you to this, this uh, slowly emerging uh, more prohibitive attitudes within the Hanafi school. Generally speaking though, when you look at early sources like Ibn Abi Sayba and his Musannaf, um, the Kufans and Basrans are quite tolerant of female imamate. And even the hadith of Umwaraqa, even in the variants where she leads her household in prayer, including men in, in some variants, presumably, uh, these also have Kufan and Basrans. So the Iraqis were generally, quite, or Iraqians, as Joseph Shacht would say, were quite lenient about this. In contrast to the Medinans, who, as Ben Amsadigi points out, uh, that's Medina is where the categorical prohibition emerged. You do not find the question of female imamic discussed in the Muatta, but it's there in the Mudawana and many subsequent sources. Generally speaking, uh, with some exceptions, one student of Malik, according to Al-Bazi, uh, says that Malik permitted female imamic, but the Medinans are generally against imam female imamic categorically, even when it comes to leadership of other women in prayer. The Shafi's and Hanbalis, uh, generally accepted, the later ones, kind of, some of them come to dislike it. And this mirrors the Shafi and Hanbali opinion on women's access to mosques and ritual spaces. So interestingly, you have this, this curious phenomenon whereby uh, the Shafi's and Hanbalis, probably because of their textualist commitments, Calderini indicates, are actually more easygoing about women leading other women in prayer and also their access to mosques. Of course, 13th, 14th century onwards, there comes to be... Um, some further discussion of this, uh, and they deploy this facade as a mad argument increasingly. Uh, now, 
in the third chapter, she discusses the hadith of Umwaraka in particular, and also this curious incident involving the early Kharizite woman who dies in the year 77, uh, Ghazal al-Haruriya, the wife of Shabib, Shabib bin Yazid, uh, a Ani. Uh, she establishes that notwithstanding some modern claims, Ghazala is never reported in pre-modern sources as having led the prayer, as having led men in prayer. This is a, a misreading of the sources and uh, Caldarini notes that it reflects modern assumptions and modern readings much more than it does pre-modern sources. Uh, but when it comes to, and in the Hadith of Umwaraka, of course, there are many variants of it. Uh, reported in, for instance, uh, Ibn Sa'd in his tabaqat, the Sahih of Ibn Khuzayma, Sunan Abi Dawood, the Musnad of Ahmed, and so on, and also Sunan of Dar al-Qutni in more than one version. In the Sunan of Dar al-Qutni, he specifies that she led the female members of our household in prayer. So when those against female uh, prayer of uh, female imamative men invoke the hadith, they mention specifically the, the variant mentioned by Dara Qutni, which specifies that she led uh, the woman of a household in prayer. But in Ibn Sa'd and in other versions like Abu Dawood, um, they mentioned that she had a mu'adhin. And in the, in the version reported by Abu Dawood, the mu'adhin is a rawi of the hadith, Abdurrahman al-Ansari. So it's clear that she is leading not just women, but also the men of a household in prayer. Uh, and she discusses varying interpretations of this and transmissions of the hadith and so on. And she discusses various legal schools and the modern debate. She looks at the, the institution of women's mosques in both Muslim majority and minority contexts. A number of these have been established recently, but it is a historical phenomenon. It's not entirely modern. And also uh, in this uh, fourth chapter, very interesting exploration of, uh, of course, the debate we're all familiar with in one way or, or another women's leadership of men in prayer, especially uh, the scholarship on this exploding after the 2005 prayer led by Amina uh, Wadud, and she explores responses to this by, you know, Muslim authorities and legal authorities in the Muslim majority world, but also debates on it in the Western uh, world and other, other minority contexts. So hopefully that gives you a clear sense of the structure of the book and what she's doing. A lot of stuff going on in this book and of you know, it's, it's, it's an impressive work and I really enjoyed reading it. I should say finally, uh, Osama, that it's, it's extremely accessible. It is uh, something that specialists can benefit from, but also uh, your, your general educated readers, they would say. So it includes a glossary then to make it nice and accessible. And uh, it's, it's a very timely book, given this recent uh, one friend reminded me this BBC interview with the new head of the Muslim Council of Britain specifically that mentioned this, this issue. So a timely, very important and much awaited book uh, that I enjoyed reading. Right. Thank you, Amar. I mean, that's really uh, a wonderful, comprehensive overview of the text, uh, as much as is possible in basically a sort of 12 <laughs> minutes or so. And uh, I, I'm, I really appreciate it and I'm sure our listeners will appreciate it. Uh, but I think the, the thing you mentioned about the BBC interview also highlights, in a sense, the sort of feverish environment in which um, a lot of these debates take place. And it's nice to see someone like um, Clarini bring this to a sober sort of and, and very, Absolutely. very sort of uh, deeply informed, as, as you put it, exhaustive. I've, you know, read through uh, sections of the book, but, uh, you know, I did notice that it's um, the ends of the chapters are, are very, very offer very detailed notes um, on uh, everything that's being mentioned. And it's always impressive to me um, when you have an author dealing with a contemporary issue, but is able to have so much coverage of the pre-modern uh, discourse. Um, yes. And and that, you know, that's a, a sign I, of I great... I should say, I mean, you have yeah. philology in this text, of course, reading of this pre-modern legal text. You also have, you know, discourse analysis. So it's right. it's very interdisciplinary. Something she she emphasizes right. in the introduction. Right, right. Uh, although, I mean, I I was also sort of, um, and and this is something I, I remarked to you briefly earlier that, uh, in a sense, uh, all discourse is situated naturally 
um, including mm -hmm. scholarly discourse. And, and so she begins with this anecdote of being in parliament and bumping into this um, sort of leader of imams in India who you know, said that they represented half a million imams in the country. And um, he, she asked, are there any women among them? And, and his kind of, his, his face kind of froze and he was like, what, what was that? And he just completely ignored the question. Uh, and, and I think that that also underlies, uh, underlines a kind of, um, you know, this is a, a debate that has arisen in a particular context. And it's um, sort of very uncomfortable in many respects in some other contexts. And there is that, you know, there is that tension there, the discomfort um, to a certain extent, may be a question um, specifically of the loss of privilege, potentially. Uh, and I also think that, you know, there's naturally, um, uh, you know, as, as we've discussed many a time uh, in the past here, um, there's that tension between um, seeking justice for women, but also recognizing that certain perspectives on justice for women that are being uh, advocated in English. I mean, what's really interesting is why is this book being written in English rather than in Arabic, right? Or rather than, um, you know, the, the gentleman who's coming from India with 500,000 imams, uh, rather than in Hindi. Yes, or, so and, it's yeah. so a great series a, of questions. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she does point to uh, this this anecdote with Hadza Faiza in, uh, in, uh, in the work of Seba Mahmoud, and she says yes. that we must not assume that uh, you know assertions of women's agency are right, right. with women's resistance to patriarchy so even within patriarchal right. context you can have have assertions of women's agency and this yeah. comes up again when she's discussing women's masks like this this one that, that kind of operates periodically in Los Angeles the women's mosque of America established in right. 2015 or 16 that um, you could say that this is liberating to women. Others would say that it perpetuates a kind of separation of the genders in, in public space, if you like. So there are different ways of, of approaching this, but certainly uh, Dr. Calderini is sensitive to the political dimensions of the question. And she, she explores at some length, uh, because this is, of course, an ongoing debate, but there are distinctions between how Doris discussed it in the, I don't know, in 16th century Istanbul versus how it's discussed today. Uh, it is no longer the preserve of a scholarly elite and women instead of being the, the subjects, if you like, <laughs> are now participants in right. the discussion, which is, is a, of course a crucial development. Instead of being merely talked about, they are also uh, leading prayer in some cases and, and, and talking back. Absolutely. And, and this kind of is reminiscent of a, a sort of point that was raised in the last week's discussion. Um, when we were looking at Shahla Hari's book and the fact that, you know, uh, I think she mentions there that, uh, you know, the first tafsir of the Quran written by a woman, as far as we can tell, and it's not really a comprehensive tafsir, it's by the daughter of, you know, Uthman Danfodio, mm -hmm. which is in the 19th century or something along those lines. And, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> in a sense, the sort of um, fiqhi or scholarly voice uh, of women is... I, I, she kind of, um, Calderini suggests this by talking about, I've uncovered a secret history or something along those lines towards the introduction, that, um, you know, these are all there in the uh, secondary source, yeah. uh, in the primary sources, but um, they need to be unearthed. And I think that's what a lot of, you know, excellent gender scholarship does. It, uh, you know, um, looks at these, sorry, it looks at these sources that we've known for so long and it, you know, really gives us a, a, a refreshing new perspective that we've, um, for all sorts of reasons, ideological or otherwise, kind of not really grappled with at all. So yeah. in that regard, I think, yeah. Yes, and uh, its comprehensiveness, I think, is, is the main contribution. Of course, many kind of debates being explored in the book, but, you know, you've had lots of debate about the Hadith of Omaratha, but right. this book really adds, I mean, I would have loved to see Isnad diagrams and trees, but she does actually pass the SNED, so as well as saying, you know, pro pro MM8 SNE the Iraqi Kufan and Basra, she she looks at Mrs. Tohafat al Ishraf to even evaluate the rawis of the hadith, which is which is Which is, I mean, in a sense, the Isnad Kam Matnan analysis has now become, 
you know, normative almost, and and I think that really enriches our scholarship. And yeah, so I, I should add, she's she she says very clearly she's not making any claims about the historicity of these reports. Yes, absolutely. But clearly, according to this, and something that even uh, Jonathan Brown and others have mentioned, Nevin Redda, yeah. uh, that um, if you look at the hadith of Amwaraka, for example, I mean, and, and the hadith of, of women leading other women in prayer, she mentions a, a number of reports. Aisha, Umm Salama, and Qamama bint Sa'ada, and the the area of uh, Ali Zain al-Abideen and Abdullah bin Umar instructor women to be praying. These are trusty, credible sources according to the standards right. of classical hadith criticism. Right. So when, when she uh, <laughs> curiously accuses people of disregarding these hadith of bid'ah, she's, she's making a serious point, which is right. if the basis of legal discussion is authoritative hadith, then you know why why are we not paying attention to this hadith, which is a kind of long-standing criticism uh, that there is still. It's ironic. I mean, she's calling it bidah, and that criticism is actually it sounds like a very common Salafi criticism as well, which yeah. is quite. Um, and uh, she, I she mean, points she out, signal, uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. I, I was just going to say she does signal, for example, the Hanam Sadiq's remark that uh, at the end of the day, a lot of the time you know, the fiqh uh, seems to have been ex post facto rationalization using the sources rather than drawing on in the way. Yeah, they so Sadiqi is definitely one of her more important interlocutors, as well as Marion Katz, of course, the great Marion Katz, right. and, uh, and indeed others. Now, uh, Sadiqi's book is, is also extremely important, of course. Um, and what Sadiqi really shows is uh, that Islamic law, it's a point made by other scholars, Shaman Jackson in his article, Fiction and Formalism, Ahmed, Atif Ahmed as well in his book on structural interrelations, uh, that fiqh is, is more than simply an equation of Quran plus hadith equals, equals right. fatwa. Um, and this is, now when it comes to the issue of women, and in particular women's imamate, either of other women or of, of men in prayer, uh, this is, is writ large, if you like. So how is it that a jurist like a Tahawi can dislike but permit female amamid? Shaybani, she says, uh, says, but says it's at least for super arrogatory prayer that it is, it is acceptable. And later jurists like Kasani uh, say that it is a mensur. So clearly there's a development going on. And it's a huge, you know, huge sociological question. How do you explain this increase in conservatism? She, right. she suggests, for example, that the Muslims kind of acclimatize to the broader Near Eastern society into which they emerge over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I mean, the Prophet, uh, his society was not a highly stratified one if you compare it to the neighboring Byzantine right. Sicilian right. empires. And, and this was a, a yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say, I mean, this does seem to be quite common in a lot of, I mean, for want of a better expression, in primitive societies, there's a lot less hierarchy, a lot more flattening, including between genders and the roles that male, males and females play in society very often. Absolutely. Not as, you know, rigorously differentiated. And, I mean, I'm interested to sort of actually explore um, or understand and, and get your impressions on this as well. When I first read um, Marion Katz's book, which is on the shelf behind me, um, women um, sort of in the mosque. I I, I was struck by this uh, suggestion. I don't think she made it quite so forcefully, but she basically said it's quite strongly suggested in the literature that there is this kind of facade zaman argument. As time passes, the notion of fitna changes from one sense of sort of social discord and, you know, the first fitna being actual civil war to a notion of women, you know, being a cause of fitna because of temptation and these sorts of things. And um, I, I just sort of wonder, I mean, partly because, um, you know, there are, of course, some hadiths, and she does mention them, uh, we're speaking of cats right now, uh, mm-hmm. that um, there are some hadiths that uh, suggest, um, you know, female fitna already, although, you know, we need to see how historical they are, I suppose. But I, I would imagine that, you know, Sunnis consider them authentic, which is another, I mean, this is a slightly separate point I'll just make very quickly, mm-hmm. but I think uh, Calderini makes a very good point in terms of, making the distinction between what is legally efficacious and what is historical. So she's not making claims on historicity, but, you know, as other scholars have So she mentions Brown, Brown's work on this, even weak hadith can be generative of legal norms. Right, precisely. And 
Um, and, uh, you know, that, that in a sense helps us bracket the authenticity debate when we're dealing with these things in practice. And, and that's very useful as a sort of methodological tool, I think, in Western Islamic studies. But, um, you know, with respect to uh, Marion Katz's argument, I just sort of wonder, um, you know, how, what you think as someone who's read both books and, and you know, has been reading in this sort of area, how how plausible is that sort of argument that there is actually is it across the board is it jurists geographically spread across different sort of yeah I, one one great uh, fact that Calderini brings our our attention right. to is that even rabbis in the late ancient period used this argument about the devil's insinuation to advocate for the separation of men and women in, in synagogues now I'm not kind of, she doesn't go into this at great length. But it is not a development one assumes that is distinctive to Islamic society. Now, of course, Jews were residents of the Near East and already part of these highly stratified societies, unlike the earliest Muslims. But I think a recognition of this distinction, as Panilla Maini has made a similar point, it's there already in Al-Jahid's Risala fil Qiyan. You know, the women who tend to speak up in these early sources. Uh, as Maina says, are you know either Bedouins or early Muslims, or in later periods, like in the Abbas period, slave women. Uh, but, but there is an awareness, I think, even within the within the tradition itself, within by authors like Al Jahid on this increasing right. in Two secondary sources. Can you sort of give the titles of the works as well? Um, you I'll just put those in the comments. Yeah. Sure, sure. But I mean, just uh, for the listener as well. The, the uh, Risala fil Qiyan of Al Jahid has been translated by Beeston as the epistle on seeing girls. You mentioned Mina? Uh, Mina, her book on f- female sexuality in the early medieval Islam called something like a fantastic book on female sexuality. There's not a huge amount of literature on this. Uh, the scholarship, like the primary sources, of course, tends to privilege the male. This is why Mina's book is, sure. is very interesting. Sure. Now, um, so yeah, I, I think uh, Calderini, this argument is, is very compelling. Uh, I think explaining this development is is a very big historical question, and I, others have made this the, the similar kind of point in different ways. Barbara Freya, the late uh, well, no, yes, the late Barbara Freya Stowasa also uh, has made this point. For instance, when it comes to the example she gives, is jurists holding that veiling of the face is obligatory. Later jurists are much more insistent on this than early ones. Right, absolutely. Uh, I know we could we could say more about that, but uh, to kind of return to the book. Right. So, I mean, there are a number of reports I mentioned, Um Salama Al-Asa, Saad, and others, of women leading women in prayer right. with Iraqi Asnads. And, you know, there's, there's no reason not to, there's no good reason to disregard these besides besides Methad loyalty, and yet we see, and I should say, uh, in addition to, I, just to illustrate the comprehensiveness, this is not just, as is often the case in Islamic studies, Islamic equals Sunni, no, so he brings uh, both 12 the jurists, especially Sheikh Al-Ta'if, Ibn Babawain al-Allam al-Hilli, as well as Ismailis, of course, her first book on a woman in, in the Fatimid context, uh, co-authored with uh, Dila Cortesi, you know, so she, and she's published an article on Qadi Nu'man. And Qadi Nu'man is, is very interesting because he gives sort of symbolic interpretations of these restrictions on female agency. So he talks about the the male as the active principle of you like versus the female of the passive and as the passive. And you know, you cannot a female, woman cannot lead men in the same way that a student cannot summon a teacher. Right? That's that's not how authority works. Right, right. Um, and of course, this is uh, this symbolic, if you like, uh, element of the discussion we find also in Ibn al-Arabi, the, the, not the Qadi, but the, the mystic, lies in 1240. Uh, and I mean, his views have been mentioned, but in the Futuhat, he categorically approves of female amamate, even over men, saying that all spiritual stations, including the Qutub itself, is available to women. So that's very interesting. But a curious point is many uh, the, the legal authorities who tended to be most permissive when it came to female anatomy, at least of other women, tended to be the textualist jurists because there are these precedents very clearly in, in a, a number of sources. And by a similar token, uh, those who permit female uh, leadership of men in prayer 
in different contexts also tend to be textual inclined. So uh, Abu Thawr and Tabari, according to Ibn Rushd, categorically approve of female leadership in, in prayer, you know, even over other men, even for obligatory prayers. There are others like Al-Muzani. Interject. So, I mean, I also want you to sort of perhaps comment uh, after you've made this remark that um, about the way in which, um, how is it the Kufans, the early Kufans seem to have been open to this, but, um, you know, the Hanafi Madhab, as you say, it's mansukh in later sort of discussions and, and that's kind of the muftabihi. But um, I, I wonder if um, there's there are reports from Abu Hanifa himself within the Madhab. Um, he, so, yeah. yeah, so in the Kitab al-Athar, she mentions uh, Muhammad ibn al-Hassan cites a report uh, via the Isnad Abu Hanifa, Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman, Ibrahim al-Nakhi, right. uh, that permits women's leadership of other women in prayer. Uh, but even, even Shaybani is, is not completely comfortable with this. He says, La yajibuna. La yajibuna, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, uh, that's an impeccable isnad, as it were. So in terms of like uh, oh, yeah. knowing what Hanifa's position was on the question. And, uh, you know, the it's really interesting because the, the latest school generally, in my experience as someone who's trained in the Hanifi Madhab, so to speak, uh, is to go with the position of Abu Hanifa wherever possible. So it's very rarely that they depart from it. Um, and so, you know, ostensibly that would be the position, but I've not heard that as the position, shall we say. So maybe this no. is one of the places where they do depart from it. Very the Hanafi school is extremely interesting and, you know, not to pick them up or anything, but distinctive, it seems. Right. And this, this really comes through and dynamic in terms of how their rulings change, I think, to a greater extent and in, in a more kind of sophisticated way than any other legal school, frankly. There's something that comes across very strongly in Nora Safrir's book on the Aqila, which focuses on the Hanafis, their, their rulings kind of take account of the context and bonds of solidarity, how that changes sociologically much more than other schools. So I think there's a kind of big argument to be made there about the Hanafis. Now, as Sadiqi as well as Calderini have pointed out, you get this curious phenomenon of reinterpretation of authorities' opinions. Right. So, and it's something Sadiqi says in the context of, of, uh, of, of one and prayer as well, the statements of Abu Hanifa or the Sheikh or Imam Muhammad and so on of Karaha Tanzihiya, this kind of dislike that is not prohibitive, are reinterpreted by later authorities as tahrim, so prohibiting. It's a very, very common phenomenon. I've, I've seen it a number of times, and, and both Sadiq and Kaldarini give, give examples of it. I should say the, the 12 Shia. Uh, like the Shafis and Hanbalis are generally fine with women leading other women in prayer. And one, and she brings up so many interesting legal views. And to give an example of this reinterpretation, she cites Sheikh Ta'ifa as saying that uh, he even permits women's calling of the Adhan for right. men's prayer. Now, this causes problems for, you know, Woman's voice is aura, as Al-Allam Al-Hilli says. And he says, you know, it may be, and I haven't seen the Arabic, but, you know, Rabbama Sheikh Ta'afa meant woman and specifically the household or something like this. So very implausible interpretations, uh, but all under the guise of staying within, within the kind of confines of the tradition. So the, again, one of the major, really the, the major motif of the book is not only continuity and rupture, but also these arguments about the past, how it is constructed and deployed in different ways. So even uh, you know those who are advocating what is actually changed from uh, you know in legal opinion still can kind of present themselves as, as uh, retaining a fidelity to the tradition, like the Hanafis, Hassani, and, and so on. Right. I mean, um, if we take a kind of McIntyrean conception of tradition, you know, tradition is a, an argument extended through time and it's about sort of uh, arguing with insiders and outsiders uh, of the tradition. And in a sense, what matters, and this is my sort of um, defense, so to speak, of the Hanafis uh, against the Shafis. So the, the Shafis are the textualists and the Hanbalis follow them. But the Hanafis and the Malikis, to a certain extent, try and retain this kind of, and, and the Hanafis even to this day, kind of um, have all sorts of mechanisms to justify their distinctions from, uh, you know, the textual corpus very often. Um, and, yeah. you know, it's the fact that at the end of the day, um, you know, it's the tradition 
uh, of the madhab which is seen as a better vehicle for the sunnah of the prophet than the actual hadith and yes. you know it's, it's it's obviously the case that um, shafi's uh, argument was incredibly influential and people like ahmed shamsi have uh, demonstrated that and, and scholars before him but um I, I think that tenacity of the hanafis to this day uh, speaks for uh, yeah, speaks volumes. Yes. This is a point made at length by uh, Dr. Soil Hanif in his thesis on Marghinani that even with the kind of triumph of Shafi's argument about the authoritativeness and authority of the Hadith corpus, uh, even in later kind of early or classical medieval texts like Marghinani, for him the most what is authoritative is, is the views of the Kufans, in particular Abu Hanifa and the circle. Um, but as moderns, we can ask questions about, well, yes, it's nice to kind of follow this tradition, but at what cost? Uh, I mean, especially especially in, in minority contexts, right? I mean, she cites this 2009 Gallup poll that in the United States, female mosque attendance is, is almost level with, with male mosque attendance. Right, right. right, right. Now, you know, so that this is worth bearing in mind. Absolutely. I, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly sort of not... Um, suggesting that people should strictly adhere to a single madhab uh, in the form that it existed in, uh, you know, in a particular context historically. And I think even someone like Bernam Sadigi, you know, is quite conscious about, you know, how legal change does happen when things become extremely uncomfortable. I can't remember his exact phrasing for that. Uh, and, you know, law, in a sense, again, drawing on people like Khalid al-Fadl, you know, it's about continuity as much as possible. So the when things have to change, the you know, law is very conservative by default, as it were. Um, but in our times, uh, you know, it makes a great deal of sense to have the flexibility that people like Ahmed Fakhri Ibrahim talk about in pragmatism in Islamic law. That um, and, and, you know, that really, if uh, Ibrahim's book is anything to go by, that seems to be quite, you know, uh, accepted in in the later centuries in the central Islamic lands that you can switch between madhahib, engage in tahayyur. Although I'm not sure I agree with his characterizing tahayyur and tabal. Um, is the same thing. Um, but uh, but no, I, I think this is really sort of um, eye-opening a discussion with you as always. Uh, I want to remind it's the people. the book that's really eye-opening, of course. Very again? It's the book that's really eye-opening, of course. Oh, of course. And, and uh, I mean, we we reiterate every time we have a, a book on gender by a female author that, you know, this is a... <laughs> we, we are very conscious of our positionality in this entire discussion. So we're, we're very grateful to um, Timurta Calderini for her wonderful book in this regard. And I just want to remind everyone, um, you know, we're coming on to almost 40 past and we'll soon be trying to address some of the questions that are coming in. A couple have come in. And we'd love to um, have your um, questions. Please feel free to add them in Facebook or in the chat on YouTube, and it'll show up for us. And, and we we look forward to addressing that. I should say something about um, one thing that I was only dimly aware of uh, that she explores, especially in the in the fourth and the final body chapter. Right. Um, both the notion of women's mosques, which you find in China in the 18th century onwards. Uh, and I mean, even in Muslim majority context today, many including, you know, Senegal and the Comoro Islands and uh, many other contexts. The Mal Mal uh, Maldives is an interest, Maldives or Mauritius? Uh, Mauritius, I believe, is, is an interesting one because uh, in the 1970s, the government recognized these women's only mosques. And in 2005, there were as many as 250 of them, but they've all since been shuttered reportedly for financial reasons. But even in pre-modern context, particularly among the Hui ethnic group, Ominsu, in the, in the Chinese context, not, not among the Uyghurs, for instance, which is interesting, you had these inst institutions, and she refers us. There's a, you know, anthropologists have done most of the cutting edge work on this kind of phenomenon. Not, not so much historians. Uh, Ingrid Matson says these, uh, the new Ahongs, these kind of female spiritual elites, are not prayer leaders as such. But anthropologists have actually observed them leading prayer. Uh, so that's that's not entirely true. Calderini suggests. And you find similar phenomenon elsewhere in the Muslim majority world. So 
Now, one thing that does seem to be distinctive, as far as I can tell, to the minority context, is women's leadership of men in prayer. Right. And I think uh, both of us are old enough to remember quite well the reaction when uh, Wood led this prayer in New York in 2005. Uh, I remember I was a teenager at the time, and uh, not the imam, but a kind of Masjid uncle was very upset about this, and he was crying, saying, a woman has led prayer, this is a calamity. And she explores this debate very interestingly, uh, you know, both in the majority and in minority context. Nevin read in 2005, I think shortly before, or perhaps shortly after, I forget, the prayer published an important article on the site, Muslim Wake Up, kind of defending this uh, this action using the hadith of Umaraka. And uh, Amja, the Assembly of Muslim Jewish of America, published like a an anthology of fatawa, kind of disagreeing with this perspective, only one of which was uh, contributed by female, actually, the, the scholar Hina Azam, who said it, it violates the sanctity of, uh, of our ibadat. Uh, Interestingly, I hadn't realized this, but Qaradawi, called the Renew Reports, permits uh, women's leadership of men in prayer, in the household, even obligatory prayer. Uh, And you had a range of responses to Rida and other arguments put forward by advocates, if you know what I mean. Off the top of my head, I I don't remember. But I do know that uh, she doesn't mention Muhammad al-Ghazali, but Muhammad al-Ghazali did say something about female female imamate as well. Right. Uh, I think that the context of Bin Tashat is saying she's so learned, how could you know, men not pray, but something like this. Right, right. Um, I think, I think uh, my recollection is that Khardawi at the time actually objected, but he may very well have been objecting to the fact that this was a public sort of um, prayer and public Yeah, event. so Jumar, Jumar is now you know, there are a number of positions. Uh, so she even mentions Ibn Taymiyyah and one way away from Ahmed is that uh, in cases of necessity, at least according to Ibn Taymiyyah, so the men are all illiterate and only the woman knows Quran, a uh, woman can lead men in prayer and taraweeh in, in the household even. But then you have other things. So Abu Thawr and Tabari categorically permit female and men. And within these, you have different different right. views. Right. Um, I mean, yes. if you... I mean, the the response, so I remember, I think there was an, a debate on Al Jazeera Arabic at the time. Um, it might still be, I mean, the great thing about um, some of these uh, news organizations is you can Google the debates and you'll you'll be able to read the details now. But Taha Jabal Alawani was in discussion with Amina Wadud on Al Jazeera, if I recall correctly. Oh, interesting. And so the presenter sort of, um, I think, mentions that Yusuf Qaradawi said that this was impermissible or something like this, or no one has given the fatwa that this is permissible. And then Jabal Alawani says, no, actually, Abu Thawr and Al-Tabari give this position, right? <laughs> so he's not, he's not, he's uh, not entirely uh, correct in that regard. Um, but, uh, but yes, I mean, it's, what's interesting about um, these sorts of aqwal in the Musannaf works, uh, usually they're found, I, I'm not sure about these two uh, authors. Those two are in Bidayat al-Mujtahid. Right. There are lots of sources, she says, where Tabari is said to have permitted both women's judgeship, qada, and imama categorically. So that that's not just, but the, the one it's normally cited from is Bidat al-Mujtahid, I think. So, I mean, I, and, and that makes a lot of sense. I mean, those are somewhat later than the Musannaf works, as it were. But um, in Musannaf works, the, the anxiety that you hear from a lot of people on these sorts of questions, once you go to the Musannaf works and you kind of, you can dig up all sorts of weird and wonderful opinions, right? On everything. And, um, Sell, selling foundlings as slaves, uh, <laughs> <death> <laughs> slavery, I mean, all kinds of weird, weird right. as a, as a, as a, as a who said something like, or some, something along these lines. Right, right, right. And, 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 and Brown has an article in this uh, edited volume, uh, is it Reinventing or Reclaiming Islamic Tradition, I think, edited by Elizabeth Kendall and Ahmed Khan, Right, on right. the opinion of Ibn Shubrama on minor marriage and also opinions permitting certain kinds of riba being mobilized in the modern period. This is what happens in the modern period. People excavate these works. Right. And right. as Calderini says, the, a new context has arisen whereby some opinions, you know, there's a, there's a real traction or there's, there's, a, there's a kind of context in which one can invoke them in a popular way. And I think that, I mean, I, I need to reread um, 
Jonathan Brown's um, article on this, um, but I, I remember having a conversation with him and him, he, he saying something along the lines of, you know, uh, most of the scholars say that you can't just dig up a position from one of the Musannaf works because you don't really know it's Mustanad, you don't, it's not been systematized. And all that. I mean, people say this stuff, but, you know, many opinions attributed to Abu Hanifa are surely not his or misrepresentations of his view. As Aziz Kaldarin is, I think, shown in, uh, right. in this, uh, and Sadiq right, and right, other right, scholars. Right. And I think, I mean, no, actually what, what Jonathan Brown was saying in that particular discussion was that, um, you know, they say that um, a modern scholar who has the kind of weight, uh, you know, a, a very sort of, uh, is, is seen as a serious uh, jurist can uh, invoke those sorts of things. I think he was quoting Ali Goma specifically saying, Ali Goma said that, you know, um, you know, serious modern scholars, um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I'm probably mangling his words here, but serious modern scholars, um, you know, can uh, invoke these and they're allowed to deploy them, but it shouldn't just be you know, loosely. Well, and, this, and this, this is how one, one respect, one respect in which the discourse has changed according to culture. Absolutely. You have many, many voices and perspectives being added for, for yeah, better or for Which actually in many respects resembles the earliest period where you had this sort of vast ocean of diverse opinions, which are in some sense brought into sort of uh, you know, the codification episteme, to quote uh, Fakhri Ibrahim, um, just for the purpose, because of the social logic of taqlid and, th and things like that. And mm -hmm. and I think, um, you know, all of that sort of crumbling in the, in the context of modernity allows for, in a sense, the refashioning of the entire system. And that's what we're witnessing before our eyes. And it will cause a great deal of anxiety for a lot of people, but it will open yeah. up doors that were, you know, previously closed for a lot of people as well. So, you know, let's see what things settle on, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. Um, I, I'm I'm a bit conscious of time, Omar. If you, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but if you wanted to finish off and then, um, I mean, of uh, course, I cannot do justice to this book in an hour. But uh, another motif is this kind of constant invocation of, you know, this parallel between Imama Kubra and Suhra. Right. So, and she talks about the criterion for prayer leadership, right. uh, you know, Fadila and and so on, uh, in in the context of politics uh, for the uh, for the and Sabiqa, ex excellence and precedence that Asmaa has discussed. And in the Quran and in the, in the Hadith corpus, sorry, the criterion that emerged most strongly for who should lead prayer is in a particular way, of course. Somewhat egalitarian in the sense that knowledge and, and piety to, to a extent are really the key things. The jurists often say it's not knowledge of the Quran, it's actually knowledge of law because then you couldn't perform correctly and so yes, yes, In the hadith and, and uh, the, the kind of, if you like, Muhammadan intervention, وسلم, was a disruptive one. So she says that in the hadith, quite clearly, most of the time at least, you know, knowledge uh, in the sense of knowledge of the Quran is prioritized over, over other considerations. And you find hadith reports, not only of women leading other women and also leading men, as the case of the Muaraka hadith in prayer, but you also find, you know, slaves, a blind man, and children leading, leading, leading adults in prayer, for example. So on all of the kind of binaries of Islamic law, where the adult, minor, slave, free, these binaries Kisha Ali has discussed a lot, uh, male, female, you know, in, as far as prayer leadership is concerned, you have reports subverting all of these hierarchies in a kind of egalitarian direction. Now, that's not necessarily how the legal schools uh, understood these. So she said the Shafi's and some Imam Shia accept the prayer of the Imam of a Mumayyiz child above the age of Tamiya, seven or eight or so. But most require Buluh in an Imam. They have to obtain his majority. Um, so this this is another consideration, and, and there are indeed many other things, but we should probably have time to address. We should address the question. And and there are actually three questions from Jan Islam, our good friend from Edinburgh University, of course, and uh, and the regular sort of um, interlocutor of ours in the in the Q and A. And if anyone else has any questions, please feel free to ask them now, because sure. sometimes what happens is they get asked a bit later, and we we miss them because. Um, we come to the end of our time. So Jan Islam's first, uh, I guess, um, it's maybe more of a comment. Um, one recent controversy was over the BBC podcast where the leader of the MCB um, uh, recently uh, elected Sarah, Ka sorry, Zara. Zara Mohammed. 
Is that Muhammad? I the, both the first female and the youngest ever leader the youngest of the Muslim, Muslim Council of Britain being this umbrella body that represents, you know, some right, right. various yeah, for those beyond the British Isles, uh, you know, I guess we shouldn't assume that you know what the MCB is. If you're a British, um, I hope you do know what the MCB is, uh, the Muslim Council of Britain. But um, so, uh, you know, she was pressured over the issue of female imams, basically this really sort of absurdly hostile, um, uh, you know, white woman uh, radio presenter, sort of um, uh, in essence trying to portray herself as defending the rights of women and attacks the first mcb's first sort of muslim woman head over and harangues her over the fact that you know don't you know if there are any muslim women imams in the country i mean and shouldn't this be your primary concern and i think it's an interesting it was an interesting discussion yeah. but um, janice i basically says this raises concerns over the equivalence of imams increased yeah. sort of I, should, I should emphasize uh, yeah uh, so there's the rest oh. of the question yeah I, I'm not sure that's, that's a separate question. So we can. All right. Okay. Yeah. So one thing Simonetta says is she focuses on specifically leadership and ritual prayer. Now, what is the MM? An MM has, especially in the British context, many many functions. You know, you're a councillor. You're a MMs are forced to wear many hats, as it were. Mm. And I, even when it comes to a thing like preaching, I mean, certainly accounts of women preaching to men in the pre-modern context are fairly common. So even Alisa herself, as we mentioned last week, and then Shalahari's book, Preach to Men in Mosques, uh, Calderini mentions incidents in the 12th and 14th centuries, Um Zainab al-Baghdadi, I think, Ghazal al-Haruriya, according to al-Malati, I think is the first to mention it, Sahib Kitab al-Tanbih wa Rad ala al he mentions uh, this Ghazal uh, Haruriya, who uh, is mistakenly understood to have led men in prayer, as having preached the sermon in the, in the, in the cathedral mosque or the jamia of Kufa. Right. Uh, so, you know, some of these other roles one would associate with religious leadership, I and mean, women have, have performed. Prayer is much, uh, much less common than the other ones. Hmm, hmm. Uh, so she does, she does kind of mention this point to her credit. To her yeah, and I think you know some of these, um, you know, are the the case of the the BBC presenter is a case where I think someone's uh, basically trying to reflect uh, or analogize to other religious traditions where there may be sort of very serious and contentious debates as well on uh, regarding women's leadership. Um, I, I think uh, it's it's worth sort of uh, highlighting uh, a remark that was made uh, in the wake of that, which was that. You know, no one wants to be an imam in this country. <laughs> like, <laughs> men included. It's terrible. I mean, <laughs> unfortunately, and, like, great, great sort of article on uh, the Nation. Um, I think in the US or Slate. I can't remember now. One of these online magazines, which was asking about you know how much is an imam versus a rabbi versus a priest paid, yeah. and you know imams were paid basically you know Pocket less than. Waiters, unfortunately, mm. and you know this is, of course, a reflection of various kinds of challenges that exist within the sort of communities. Um, yes. Very often, immigrant communities that are kind of just getting on their feet in their second or third generation, sometimes. Mm. Um, and so, I'm I'm hopeful that that will slowly change. There's a great consciousness within the Muslim community in this country, and I hope in other countries as well where this is mm. happening. Um, the second question. Uh, I'll just put it on the screen uh, and read it for the um, people who are uh, on the replay. My question is, how can Muslims negotiate between uh, the establishment of gender roles in the early Muslim Ummah and attempts to overcome them in a response to modern liberalism's insistence on equality? Uh, this is a big question, actually. Yeah. Um, I mean, so these, you know, <laughs> these precedents do exist. Calderini shows abundantly with abundant clarity. Right. Um, and inevitably, they will be mobilized uh, in the modern period because of this overriding concern with equality and egalitarianism and so on. Uh, and that, that's, I think, to be expected. Uh, Jan Islam has also, uh, you know, put this question forward. He, he does highlight sort of modern liberalism's insistence on equality. Um, and arguably it's beyond liberalism, of course, as well. So Marxism and, and other ideologies, modern ideologies will hold these sorts of standards as well. Um, but 
I, I mean, forgive me for interrupting you, Armand, please do feel free to finish. Um, I, I was just going to say that in some respects, uh, these are. this is what I kind of remarked on last week, which is you have competing normativities now. Um, and I remember a remark by um, Abdul Hakim Murad of Cambridge Muslim College um, about, um, I, I heard that this, he gave the lecture at Oxford probably around 13 years ago now. And uh, he made a remark which will resonate with a lot of Muslims um, who are, you know, very uh, committed to the um, theological tradition. And and, the, uh, and and he basically said, the ijma' of Westerners is not a hujjah in the sharia, <laughs> which, I mean, sounded really quite um, uh, amusing at the time. Uh, it's, it's, but it's in many respects um, how a lot but of... Them, I mean, we, we live in a globalized world, so these debates are also... I mean, one of the staunchest advocates of female prayer is uh, yeah. the late Gamal al-Banna, died in 2013, who she says, she discusses his book on, on this issue. Right. Uh, and I but, mentioned the Qur'an Darwin, there are others as well. I'm not, I'm not sort of, of course, um, uh, you know, I'm not making a remark about um, female prayer per se here. Um, I'm just saying that a lot of the theologically minded, and I'm not suggesting sort of everyone is theologically minded in this way, are very concerned about those sorts of pressures. And I think um, Jonathan Brown actually highlights this quite nicely in his uh, Misquoting Muhammad, where in a sense, you know, why is Jamal al-Banna making that argument, right? Why are a lot of these people making these arguments? Because of considerable pressures that, you know, emerge from outside. Uh, uh, you know, Brown has this very interesting um, uh, sort of uh, phrase where he says, their qibla shifted from Mecca to the West. And that is, of course, I mean, that's, he's talking about, you know, other particular instances. Here, you actually have a case where there's precedent within the tradition itself, which is actually textually quite sort of like persuasive. And this is, you know, Brown makes the same point in that book as well. And he, you know, argues that Umwarakh is, is sound precedent for this sort of, um, this ruling. And, but it's not, you know, he's not pulling something out of a, a hat here. There are hadiths that are in canonical, well, canonical and quasi-canonical sources. And there are early jurists who had these positions. And there are later jurists who had these positions. So in a sense, it's a different sort of scenario. I'm just making it a little bit longer. Yeah, no, it's, uh, well, it's a tricky one. This is the, the $64,000 question, as it were. I should say, Kulderini uh, discusses Tabari, I think Tabari specifically. And because he, he has this, you know, uh, when you read these opinions, many people, I think, anachronistically will claim that, oh, Tabari was a feminist or something like this, which I think is, is obviously mistaken. She says, well, Tabari's concern is just the ritual, ritual validity of act. Um, now, Tabari will have that opinion coming from one perspective, um, and moderns will, you know, there's, there's no way of ignoring this context in which we live. You know, you cannot mentally, you know, even if you try to kind of avoid egalitarianism for whatever reason. And Tabari is situated as well, of course. I mean, when you're saying that he's looking purely at textual, you, I mean, you and Calderini will both completely recognize that he obviously is situated in a particular context. And I think right. that historical discussion is also so crucial for understanding this facade zaman argument. I'm, I'm very intrigued by this an, uh, um, argument, uh, which you suggest that Calderini makes, but I'm hearing from you mainly that, you know, in a sense, the stratification of more complex societies creates this urge to, you know, um, separate out and and uh, in some respects seclude yeah. particularly class women um, mm. in a way that you don't have classes right like that in uh, Arabian society uh, certainly not in the Bedouin culture but even within sort of cities in Arabia at the time which were would have been very very primitive by the standards of yeah so I mean, if you look at the sources like Ibn Sa'd and she mentions uh, mentions uh, um, um Salama the wife of the one of the wives of the Prophet to Salam and I know that Yasmin I mean has even uh, created this Musnad of Um Salama that she's edited. I think it's it's coming out with the Brill. Uh, very exciting, based mm -hmm. on her, her master's thesis at AUC. But you know right. these these women have like a character and a personality in the sources. Um Salama is the one uh, she rebukes Omar in some contexts, right? And she is the one uh, the suburb of this. Uh, precisely, you know why why is God not addressing women in the Quran and, and this verse? So. And we saw in a previous week that women are linked to about a dozen uh, sebab uh, or asbab and muzuls, if you like, right. Right, in right, the right. So 
I think these women have character, they have a personality, they're not wallflowers in any sense. Uh, and yet, if you were to look at the kind of discourse several centuries later, the woman who had the most agency and who spoke up would be Rien, you know, uh, slave woman and, and so on, elite slave I, I, woman uh, and others. I mean, Bed I, I, and I, so on. in the sort of the more textually oriented, um, so, you know, people who are compiling, um, you know, I'd be interested in, in looking at how Zahabi or Ibn Hajar or, you know, Mizzi, uh, Mizzi maybe, uh, I don't know if he goes too much into anecdote, but certainly uh, a Zahabi would in Dir Alam and Nubala. How does his portrayal of someone like Umm Salama differ from that of Ibn Sa'ad? Because Good I feel question. that, you know, someone like Al-Jahil um, and, you know, some people have suggested that, you know, the more philosophically oriented tend to be more marginalizing of women, but I think this might be maybe contradicted by Jahid to a certain extent. I mean, it, it would be interesting to see um, yeah. how, that, and, and there has been scholarship suggesting that within Hadith scholars, I think Asma Sa'id makes Asma Sa'id. I, So I want to make two points because I'm aware where we should sort of end soon. The first is just to illustrate this point you're saying about textualists. She mentions, and uh, Ben Sadugi mentions, Al-Aini, whom Sadugi terms a maverick, notwithstanding his Hanafism, he bucks the trend, and based on his uh, Mamluk Hanafis were generally more textually oriented. Uh, so he, he, he disregards the Hanafi rule based on the Hadith. Uh, so he seems somewhat exceptional in this regard. Um, but also um, in response to your point about, gosh, what, what were you just saying? I remind you. <laughs> Forgive me, I've, I've kind of... Okay, so... Uh, yes. Um, it escapes me as well. Yeah. Me. I'm conscious of the time. If it's okay, um, I'm going yeah. to just show Islam's final question and then we'll sort of move, uh, conclude the session, hopefully, inshallah. But also important, uh, I think this might be a comment. Uh, you mentioned the notion of fiqh as ex post facto justification for both traditionalists and feminists. Wait, for feminists. But um, is not agreed. Is not the agreed purpose of the Quran Sunnah precisely to avoid this? I mean, that's the. I think that's the entire point of the debate. Yeah, right? I mean, the, this, is, this is the kind of argument Ibn Hazm will make. Uh, right. So, for instance, um, on a whole range of rulings that right. you know, and Hina Azam has a great book chapter on this in the in the web shrift for Amin Wadud that um, most fuqaha uh, and many of the Salaf discounted the woman's testimony and had cases entirely disregarded it. And Ibn Hazm says, well, no, the rule that applies normally should apply here as well. Now, Ibn Hazm is not a feminist. This view, like many of his other distinctive views, is a function of his legal theory, his commitment to texts, and so on. So, yeah, forgive me, go ahead. So, you know, to some extent, historically, you know, jurists like Al-Aini, who are textualists, have been able to override the, this kind of facetism and argument by appealing to texts. Right. Ibn Hazm is, 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 is a case in point. But, uh, and this is, this is the point I remember I want to make. Even textualist jurists, such as Ibn Taymiyyah, even Ahmed himself, do succumb to this logic. Uh, so, you know, um, Ibn Taymiyyah, when it comes to the issue of slave woman veiling, for instance, mm. Uh, which Omar reportedly forbidden. I've got an article discussing this coming out soon, hopefully. Um, you know, Omar forbids, uh, and in some accounts, you know, rebukes a slave woman for veiling and so on. Ahmed, in his Masail, I believe, uh, I forget which Rawi, says, If, you know, if she, so for Ahmed, the concern is fitna rather than distinguishing free persons from slaves. And much more could be said about this, but I'm aware that we've we've gone somewhat over, so I, I will kind of end. It's opportunity to highlight that you will, inshallah, be publishing an article on this. Uh, what's the general I'll, I'll, uh, I'll put all of the things we mentioned uh, in this episode in the, in, the comments in, the, in the comments on the YouTube video. That's fine. Jazakumullah khairan, Omar. Really always a fascinating and insightful discussion. And of course, we thank uh, Simonetta Calderini for writing this book. Um, thank you, Simonetta. Discussion in the first place. And uh, I
and with with that i'd like to just sort of uh, give the floor to you Omar, just to briefly um discuss what the uh, what the book for next week will be yes so next week i'm very pleased to report another much awaited book that i'm very excited about discussing we will be looking at uh Junaid Qadri's transformations of tradition islamic law in colonial modernity based on his excellent thesis uh, we'll see how much it diverges from the thesis on al-muti'i you know it looks at questions of the history of science islamic law and how it changes uh, in in the colonial period and so on so very excited about discussing that next week so please join us for that press and we really um do look forward to that and we hope you will all join us then inshallah for those of you who would like to get notifications please do subscribe on youtube or follow on uh, sort of twitter or like on facebook and inshallah you'll get notifications eventually jazakumullah khairan amma again uh, for really a wonderful session and until next week uh, we'll we'll see you bismillah assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah